So Rosenthal, he felt like he deserved to get special treatment since Big Tim was now ruling the roost. At the height of its influence, Tammany backed mayors, it backed senators, affected policy, and even backed presidential candidates. Becker says, I am being sacrificed for my friends. In July of 1912, Times Square echoed with gunfire. Bookie Herman Rosenthal was gunned down publicly after threatening to unveil a web of police corruption. The murder was pinned on his former friend, New York Police Officer Lieutenant Charles Becker, and details were printed in every newspaper in America about the so-called trial of the century, but certainly not all the details. Newsboys turned to gangsters, held the secrets of the Kings of New York. Hello. Welcome back. At least it did take us a full year. Just a month. A busy, busy month. Yeah. Life things happened. Yeah. And I was going to go solo, and then I kept pushing it back. And then I realized the reason I kept pushing it back is because one, our subject of this episode is a complicated, complicated man, but also Mm. because I didn't want to do it without you, Annie. So there. Thank you. I said it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to be well again. Yeah, November was crazy. Without getting into it too much, I almost died. But I'm alive. Yeah, I'm alive and I'm here. And it's given me a second wind and lots of motivation to focus on on the things that matter and this is one of the things that is very very important that was a scare very glad that you pulled through that you're here after that i i really wanted to just wait for you and record together because started this together we're gonna keep doing this together i think on top of that i was also in my own head about a particular birthday that we were going Mm -hmm. to do a shout out for in the last episode. And I don't think I'm ready to tackle that character quite yet. Okay. We have time. We have have time. time. There was a birthday shout out to Jack Sullivan. According to our records, his birthday was on November 1st, give or take a few weeks. Happy birthday, Jack. Happy belated. And the reason for that shout out was because we get so much of our information through the lens of Jack's life and research and family and documents that they very generously give us access to. So that was a big deal. Yeah. Having you back is a bigger deal. Very. (laughs) Oh, well, I don't get to meet Jack just yet. It's all right. I think there's time. (laughs) Well, speaking of shout outs, I would like to give a huge shout out to EvolvingLensBookseller.com. They sell first edition and vintage books, rare finds and fine books. They recently sold me Sacrificed by Henry Klein for a price that was within my budget. Now, I'd been pestering them for couple of months now they they finally negotiated on that price and then they wished me a merry christmas and they wished us good luck on the podcast definitely check them out if you have some rare or vintage first edition books that you'd like to find but getting back to the meat of our podcast in this chapter our subject today is relatively easy to research Thankfully, because we've definitely gone through (laughs) so many beyond obscure publications, newspaper clippings, archived with books literally the size of Annie. The fact that you were able to get this book I bought my ages ago, and it's now permanently living in a Ziploc bag because it's disintegrated from me reading through them so much. So I'm glad we have a second copy accessible 
for this. Yay. Today's episode, we're going to talk about somebody that we've name dropped ad nauseum up until this point. Mm-hmm. It is Senator Timothy Daniel Sullivan, also known as Dry Dollar, Big Feller, and eventually just Big Tim. You know, we have this uh, collection of sizable gentlemen, right? Between Tim and, and Becker, they both had very uh, imposing stature. Let's, mm-hmm. let's say that. Big Tim is, he was a very prominent politician. So there's a lot of information about him, a lot of misinformation about him. As soon as I would sit down to confirm something, you know how you, you lift a rock in your garden and then all of these critters start scurrying away? Mm-hmm. So it's been like that, but with every single tiny little pebble of a detail that could in any way relate to him. And so you know, selecting what's important to our story specifically is a little bit tough because I find something fascinating that might absolutely have nothing to do with our story. But it does build our understanding of who he was and why he did the things that he did. This episode is definitely not going to be the be-all, end-all biography. There's a really great one called King of the Bowery by Richard F. Welch from 2009. Uh, That's been a very wonderful resource for this episode. In addition to lots of online records and everything that the Wikipedia article even. Excellent. (laughs) If you ever want to know who he married and where he lived, by all means, do that research on your own. Episode five. This isn't going to be the last time that we're going to talk about Tim. So probably all of season two of Kings of New York will be about Big Tim. So much dirt. So much, so much. So we're going to set the scene on Big Tim Sullivan so that this will make sense. We have to preface that first there's something that we've talked about from time to time. This looming thing called Tammany Hall. It was the political power behind all of the police corruption, the gambling, the illicit activity, and the overall driving force in New York politics. New York City politics, but also New York State politics. At the height of its influence, Tammany backed mayors, it backed senators, affected policy, and even backed presidential candidates, setting people on the road to the Oval Office. I will throw this in. I, again, being Canadian, I tried to figure out U.S. politics, so please correct me if I'm <laughs> like misreading something or misrepresenting something. On top of that, Tammany Hall is just so convoluted to figure out. For me, this is like the stereotype of connecting photos with string and finding conspiracy theories and everything. Like Charlie <laughs> Kelly from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Like There's that meme, right? Of like, <laughs> Look, I figured it out. Aliens. <laughs> Memes sliding over here. But that's how it feels, right? When you're trying to figure out what Tammany was influencing and wasn't, and really mm. is, like they have their sticky fingers and everything. In our research, whenever something seems to happen or conveniently disappear from record, somehow Tammany is tangentially or directly related. And it's really annoying to try to convince even ourselves that this is not a conspiracy theory. Yep. So in short, the Society of St. Tammany, a.k.a. the Sons of St. Tammany, a.k.a. the Columbian Order, was founded in 1786 and incorporated officially as Tammany Hall three years later. And it would become a massive political machine of the Democratic Party influencing politics in New York City, and as Liz mentioned, in New York State as well. And for nearly a 100 years, starting with the mayoral victory of Fernando Wood in 1854, Tammany controlled Manhattan and would eventually grow to the scale of power that it wielded in the 20s. And certainly it was a big deal during the summer of 1912, when our story takes place. If you want to learn about Tammany specifically, there are phenomenal books. There's one called Machine Made by Terry Galway. Excellent, excellent overall primer on Tammany Hall if you're into political history. What we need to know for today's episode and for this 
kind of our chunk of the story. It was originally founded as a society for quote unquote pure Americans, though it appropriated Native American words and customs, going so far as naming the leadership roles and even their meeting hall with indigenous stolen terms. Pure Americans means uh, people that had come over and no longer saw themselves as immigrants. Those colonizers. The Irish members of Tammany were still not seen as pure Americans. According to the society's constitution, Tammany was a political institution founded on a strong Republican basis whose democratic principles will serve in some measure to correct the aristocracy of our city. So that's some lofty goals. By the time of our story, Tammany was well known for outreach to the new immigrants, offering social assistance to newcomers, and all they asked for in exchange were votes for Tammany. Yay! Yay! Yay, corruption. And in some cases, like we talked about back in chapter one, when we talked about Herman Rosenthal himself, they employed those very immigrants to turn the outcome of an election by force if necessary, as long as that force could be pawned off on whatever Patsy would take the fall. Tim Sullivan, as one of the top figures of Tammany by the early 1900s, was particularly fond of using repeaters. And it's a guarantee that Herman Rosenthal was one of those young fellas that Tim had tasked with lining up the number of repeat voters he needed. So repeaters means the same person voting several times. And there's a great quote from the biography on Arnold Rothstein by David Petrusa, where uh, the quote goes, when you've voted them with their whiskers on, you take them to a barber and scrap, scrap off the skin fringe. Then you vote them again with side lilacs and a mustache. Then to a barber again, off comes the sides and you vote them a third time with the mustache. And if that ain't enough and the box can stand a few more ballots, clean off the mustache and vote them plain face. That makes every one of them good for four years. <laughs> and we do have that story with Rosenthal, with Beansy Rosenthal getting caught in, was it 1902, doing that very thing, that he was caught collecting eligible, used loosely, voters on the street who get them to do this. Oh, I love these guys. The barbers were in on the I, racket. I love Guaranteed. them so much. That's whatever works, right? By 1912, Tim Sullivan was synonymous with Tammany Hall, and he was truly the face of the organization. With other more influential members preferring to stay in the shadows and letting Tim have the spotlight, he had the enviable role of running the political machine while simultaneously orchestrating everything from police corruption, the spread of gambling saloons, and padding his pockets with earnings from vaudeville, and every vice enterprise imaginable. Tim was charming. He was charismatic. He was one of, if not the youngest member of Tammany, to reach a leadership role when he did. And if we want to talk about being self-made and this whole concept of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, having come from nothing, arguably there are fewer examples that are as obvious and honestly impossible as the rise of Tim Sullivan. So he was in Tammany by age 18. Wow. He was born on July 23rd, 1862. So first generation American born. He was born in the Five Points slum. Mm -hmm. So this is the place that we keep coming back to, the Five Points, which was like the most dangerous, the most crime-ridden mm -hmm. place, especially in, in the 1860s. He was born to Irish immigrants, Daniel O'Sullivan and Catherine Connolly. When Tim was five, Daniel died of typhus. Catherine was left to take care of her four children alone. She would go on to remarry three years later, four kids. Kids are young, so they can't even really work much to help out. Uh, so she remarried to a man named Lawrence Mulligan, who was an alcoholic with a mean streak. He would have six more children with him. There, And I, I don't recall exactly where I read about this. But there was some uh, suggestion that Tim Sullivan never got along with the stepfather, that his stepfather took advantage of Tim's political position and eventually the wealth that he would amass to get a better leg up in the world. 
And there was suggestion that Larry Mulligan was one of the few people that Tim was actually afraid of. He would back off and kind of let certain family things happen that maybe shouldn't have and family taking advantage of him because he was afraid of his stepfather. In his speeches, Tim Sullivan would proudly say that when he was left without a father, he stepped up and got a job to help his family. So at six years old, tender age, he sold newspapers at City Hall Park. And funnily enough, his protege, Jack Sullivan, would say the same thing about his own origins. And there were a lot of repeated stories kind of like this. Absolutely. Well, even with Jack Sullivan specifically, like reading his origin, what the way that he presented it was word for word, which is what Tim would say in his speeches. Mm. And the reason that Jack Sullivan actually went by Jack Sullivan, that was not his real name, is he wanted to have that direct link to Tim Sullivan. So I found an article from December 15th, 1892 in the New York World that goes into greater detail about Tim's origin story, if you will. And it's one of the earliest accounts of what would be the Tim Sullivan legend. The article talks about, um, so 1892, he's uh, 29. He is the youngest Tammany leader put in charge of the new third district called the Old Eight. And I have scoured the internet trying to figure out what that district actually was, what like, geographically that was in the city. Can't find anything. So I'm sure whoever is a New York historian can correct us on this and give us a little bit of insight. Just would super appreciate knowing what the old eight district really is. So the article goes on to further describe Tim's willingness for hard work by citing that when he was left fatherless at seven, record inconsistency, but also probably <laughs> him saying he was older when he wasn't because sounds a little bit better. Tim uh, got a blacking box. So it's a kit of any shoe shine and boot black worth of salt as you would have this box that you would go along the streets and offer to shine shoes. Al Capone did the same thing as a child. And when Tim got his blacking box, he headed straight to the Oak Street police station and asked the captain for the privilege of blacking the boots of the policeman while they slept. Remember when we talked about Becker and his serving as a policeman, uh, we talked about how policemen actually boarded at the station. They lived there, they slept there for a time, and they would kind of do duty work in the shift. So impressed by young Tim's confidence, the captain of the Oak Street Police Station took him on, and he was the official bootblack of the Oak Street Station House for three years, and he would polish all of the boots of all of the cops that would be staying at the police station at any given time. When he wasn't polishing boots, he sold newspapers. His personal story of working his way up from all of these lowly, dirty jobs in the streets left a profound mark on Tim. And by the time that he had any pull politically whatsoever, he would display a soft spot for working boys like he had been with a particular affinity for Newsies specifically. And in the same article, we get the answers to the question that has bugged me for far too long. Why was he called Dry Dollar? Because Big Feller makes sense. And Big Tim makes sense. Because he was a big boy. Dry Dollar comes from the most obscure reference possibly imaginable. And it was lost to time. And it's kind of really sweet. Back in the 1880s and the 1890s, the Department of Internal Revenue issued tax stamps for alcohol. This is how obscure this like paper ephemera story goes. These tax stamps would be pasted on pegs of beer to indicate whether that peg was exempt from tax or if it was eligible for a tax refund. And so little Tim Sullivan allegedly found one such stamp on the side of a beer peg, peeled it off, and brought it home, where he proceeded to drive by the fire. His mom was confused, and he explained that he was drying a dollar because the tax per peg was $1. So that's where his nickname came from. He was literally physically drying something that was worth a dollar. Although it's not directly useful to us now, other than to explain why he had such an odd nickname, 
it is a prime example of how fruit of a businessman he was from a very young age, that he was very opportunistic in every single conceivable way. And it's not a stretch to imagine that he was willing to do whatever it took to rise up in political ranks, and he would do it by any means necessary. If that meant giving out free things to the immigrant masses, like the classical Christmas dinners that he would throw or Christmas turkeys, he even gave shoes out on his own birthday, so be it. And if it meant making personal appearances at underground boxing matches or throwing in his support behind some of the most overlooked groups of laborers, he was there. Sullivan was a self-proclaimed suffragist as well, and he did a lot to push through the laws and amendments and even personal connections for the women behind it. He felt really strongly about women's labor. He had grown up seeing his mother and his sisters breaking their backs for lower wages and under unfair working conditions. He publicly condemned such treatment. I'm sure he did have a soft spot for these women, but in reality, he was really opportunistic and he saw how many more potential votes he could score for Tammany and himself should women be granted the vote. Similarly, he threw his weight behind working children. Having started from shoe shining and selling newspapers himself, he had a particular soft spot for kids in a similar position by the time he had political clout. And during the Newsboys strike of 1899, when several thousand kids refused to sell newspapers of Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst, Big Tim personally bankrolled their rally on July 24, 1899. Of course, at face value, he was showing his support as a former newsie himself, and he clearly showed that he took the side of the newsies rather than Pulitzer, who was a longtime critic of Tammany, and Hearst, who was a political rival and often became a Tammany pawn. But again, as a personal benefit, he was planting the seeds of loyalty in this crowd of literally thousands of children who would soon grow up to be able to vote, and they would vote in favor of Big Tim and Tammany, of course. Tim Sullivan had a particular soft spot for Rosenthal. He spoke highly of him and another gambler, Arnold Rothstein, the very same that was accused of fixing the 1919 World Series. It's hard to say when uh, Rosenthal and Big Tim met, but between their mutual history with the Newsies, with Monk Eastman, with millions of other crossing paths, Rosenthal was a favorite of his. And Rosenthal, we know, was a newsboy. We've praised him down to these newsboy dinners that were held for alumni for in the early 1900s. What are the chances that they met during the strike? Or maybe even before that? They go way back. That's really the short of it. Rosenthal would have felt safe under Big Tim's wing. Tim Sullivan did not hide at all that he thought very highly of him and, and of Rothstein. He, without using the slur, called them his boys and you know if every every young man was remotely similar to herman and arnie then everybody would be so much better for it with all of the raids that eventually started happening you know by 1912 and becker's raids on gambling parlors rothstein ended up inventing the floating casino to get away from things like becker's raids Rosenthal obviously did not do such a thing. He bought a building. So that's what got us in this mess in the first place. By 1912, money had ran out from Tim Sullivan. So Rosenthal was left to ask Becker for a loan to open up his gambling place in the Tenderloin. He was originally meant to get funds from Big Tim's coffers. So what happened there? So the role Big Tim played in, in Tammany politics is very complicated, to say the least. 
he had a firm grasp of it on his own policies or where he felt things could go. But other Tammany leaders weren't as progressive as he was. And this sometimes led to disagreements and very weasley ways of striking down proposed bills. Something that I noticed in my research that there was a butting of heads where originally I had thought that Big Tim was the face of Tammany and other people that we had mentioned kind of were in the shadows, including a man named Charles Murphy, that he was the, the Murphy was the brains and Tim was the face and they kind of worked hand in hand. It was more that they were rivals and kind of reluctant bedfellows. And so there were multiple occasions where Tim would try to push through a particular bill or a proposal or something, a proposal, and then it would get struck down, very likely under the influence of Ralph Murphy because he had a lot more clout in a way to remind Tim of what his place was in Tammany. So that's point number one of what happened and why Tim kind of couldn't support Rosenthal in 1912. One of the bills that Tim Sullivan did pass was actually named after him. It was called the Sullivan Act of 1911. And this plays a huge role in our story. So it's interesting to see how one good deed, so to speak, affects another. The Sullivan Act meant that firearms small enough to be concealed required licenses in New York. Possession of such a firearm without a license was a misdemeanor. They didn't like even having it at all, owning one. Carrying it on your person was a felony. It was up to the discretion of the police whether they might consider issuing a license to an applicant on a case-by-case basis. Not that you are eligible because you check off all of these boxes, and so obviously you, you get a firearm. It was the size of your bribe. The law also made it illegal to own or sell other items that could be considered weapons, such as brass knuckles, blackjacks, bludgeons, and other similar uh, similar things. In the 2009 biography, King of the Bowery, Welch suggests that Big Tim's initial intent for this law was actually genuine, that it was a reaction to increased gun violence below 14th Street, specifically a rise in armed crimes allegedly committed by Italians. There was a very strong dislike for the new wave of Italian immigrants and any way that they could pin crime on them or any sort of reason to dislike Italian immigrants. Everybody was all the more for it. Eventually, the law would end up abused by the police to clean up as many gangsters off the streets as possible. There was a high chance that a suspected or known criminal would magically end up with an unlicensed gun in his pocket after a scuffle with police and with a police officer detaining him over a minor accusation. Jack Zellig, who we've mentioned before, was the leader of the Lennox gang, and he was a victim of such a thing. Part of the reason that he did not want to be directly involved with the Rosenthal plot was because he was actively fighting an existing illegal firearms charge over a gun that was planted on him by a cop. And he was actually appearing in court and dealing with get this off his record or whatever. He was so paranoid about this happening again that he started sewing his jacket pockets trunks so that a gun couldn't accidentally appear on him. Because what would happen is as the Cops have you, you know, in handcuffs and a wrangling. Somebody could very easily slip a small firearm in the in the jacket pocket. I, as far as I remember, he wasn't the only one that practiced this kind of precaution. It became a thing that gave, that known criminals would sew their pockets shut and would only use their inner jacket pockets. So now, knowing about this law, let's remember that on the night of Rosenthal's murder, we have at least four people all carrying guns that we're willing to bet were not legal. Not to mention that Jack Rose, Harry Valen, Sam Sheps, and even the driver of the getaway car, William Shapiro, were very likely armed simply due to the fact that they were criminals. By 1912, the Big Tim way of doing things, which was 
collecting graft, running vice, raking in the big bucks while still kissing babies and shaking hands with politicians. It was very much on the way out. The Bowery was growing more rough. Gangs were more prevalent. Poverty was still very much the norm. So all of these, you know, free Christmas dinners and free shoes and everything, it wasn't enough to reel in this rampant poverty and crime. One thing that I remember reading about, the way that Tim kind of made his name is he would meet people at the dock and give them a coupon for free shoes or give them a coupon for some groceries. So he was very much the man of the people. He moved out of the Bowery. Like things were getting so bad that he decided to move out to the tender one himself. And he set up office in the best place possible, the Metropole, the very Metropole where Roosevelt got gunned down. He was part of the owner of the hotel with the Cosadine brothers. And so naturally, this was the place for him to go. And as we kind of put these pieces together, we realized why Roosevelt spent so much time there, why it was natural for him to be celebrating the publication of this tell-all story in the newspaper that put a target on his back at the Metropole at two in the morning on a Monday night, because this was the safest place he could be. It was under Big Tim's watchful eye, physically, literally, or from the portrait behind the bar. Tim was part of a ruling triumvirate, as it's called, in the Tenderloin. So it was him, Baseball executive Frank Bayfarrell, who bought a baseball team with a former police captain, I believe, and William Sheehan. Sheehan is an interesting character because he was the personal assistant to Commissioner Waldo, the very same Commissioner Waldo that demanded all these raids on the gambling dens, on vice dens. And he was the one that put together the strong arm squad that Becker led to carry out said raids. So his personal assistant was the guy that ran the tenderloin with Nick Tim Sullivan out of the Metropole. Yeah. So Rosenthal complaining about the protection money he was supposed to pay to the police to exist in the tenderloin, he felt like he deserved to get special treatment since Big Tim was now ruling the roost. Exactly. And so it's also why he ended up going to Herbert Baird Swope, the journalist with the story. Swope was a close friend of Big Tim and Arnold Rothstein. He was known to have his feet in both camps with his with politicians. And then in the afternoon, he could go and play in Rothstein's casino and everybody would know him and everybody was friends with him. So with all of these mutual connections, Rosenthal must have really felt completely untouchable. And he actually said, there's only one man in the world who can call me off. And he had, he had written this in his affidavit. The man who can call me off is the big fellow, Big Tim Sullivan. And he is as honest as the day is long. And I know he is in sympathy with me. He don't want to see anybody else hurt. And I don't want to hurt anybody. My fight is with the police. It's fairly personal with me. I'm making no crusade, and my friends know all about it. This is how untouchable he feels, that he is okay to name Sullivan in his affidavit against the police as he's blatantly talking about the system and talking about police graft and talking about all of these terrible things that they're doing. And in the same breath, in this article published and read by tens of thousands of people in New York City alone, much less outside the city. But he's saying, but it's okay because I've got Big Tim on my side. He's got my back. I imagine that wouldn't look really that great to other Tammany politicians that Tim answered to. I'm going to just finish reading this quote. Rosenthal says, the police know that I think more of Big Tim than I do of anybody else. They know that the only way that they can hurt me is to involve him with me. By trying to show him that he is or was my partner in the gambling business. They know this is not true. That is a dirty lie. He is not and never was invested with me to the extent of a penny. I hope his name will not be brought out in this connection. Tim Sullivan and myself have been friends for many years and knew him as a boy. I would lay down my life for him, but on more than one occasion he has provided proved his friendship for me. 
I believe that I could get anything he's got. And if I need money, I can go to him for it and he will give it to me or get it for me. It is purely a matter of friendship and he never expects to make a nickel profit out of it. He's the only man that can call me off and he has told me that he believes I am doing right in trying to protect myself and my home. It's tough to read that. It really is. Considering. Yeah. It comes across as Rosenthal is floundering so hard. Mm -hmm. It sounds like he's obviously admitting that he's He's aware of all these allegations against him. But in the same breath, he's saying that Tim is the same, basically, and could never have done that. Yeah. He's he's admitting that he's a weasel. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, which one? Rosenthal or Tim or both? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The answer is yes. So here we have this. Like the thread, right? So you imagine that Hamini is not happy about this. Tim has been slowly losing his influence. So since January of 1912, there is these whisperings that Tim is on the way out. That the way that he's been running things is not really the modern way of doing it anymore. And this is where Charlie Murphy comes in. Silent Charlie was on paper, well, he was never anything more important than a commissioner of the docks. He was, as far as we're concerned, the leader of Family Hall for many, many decades. And he steered the tide of politics with him kind of being the face of it and reluctantly agreeing to certain policies that Murphy wanted to be put in place. The way that I think things are starting to deteriorate is Tim's associations with Vice and with gamblers and with all of these people that, I mean, I don't know. Do you think that Tim would have discarded these guys? I don't think so. Exactly, right? I think he was way too loyal he had been supporting, he called these men my boys. These yeah. were his protégés. Yeah. I, I. So he always had a hard time saying no to them, right? Yeah. I feel like it even pained him that he could not fund Rosenthal. That's it. Yeah. And get him out of this situation that he's been in. Yeah. And there is some conflicting evidence that Tim even met with Rosenthal the night before his murder to tell him to back down. Basically, as long as Tim's name was not openly mentioned in connection to this these graft allegations, which is exactly what Rosenthal... It's funny because Rosenthal mentions it in his quote that Tim could absolutely never possibly have anything to do with this, but he's also literally saying his name when Tim specifically asked him not to, Right. But there is uh, a suggestion that that they met the night before. Rosenthal was supposed to meet with the grand jury. He was supposed to meet with the commissioner and the DA and all have all of these meetings about these allegations that he's that he's bringing forward. Tim was just you know ixnay on the limte, basically, and um, <laughs> Rosenthal did not understand pig Latin apparently. <laughs> Part of the reason that Tim didn't give Rosenthal money is because his family was putting pressure on him to keep the money in the family. Yeah. There were Yeah, you had mentioned his stepfather, but then his brothers. They they all worked together. They were the Sullivans. There was Francis, there was Harley, there was there was a whole bunch of them and they uh, Patrick. Uh there was little Tim Sullivan who was a cousin of his. They were all in political positions to varying degrees. It seemed that as more of the direct Sullivan relatives you know, passed away, stepped away from their positions, or political positions or anything like that, more of the step-siblings looked forward, and there was kind of a shift of interest. So let's keep the money in the family. Let's keep all of the assets. Speaking of his family trying to take over his estate his wife 
died in 1912 yeah. of quote unquote consumption. So Tim never had legitimate children. So this is the other thing about the siblings and the step siblings stepping in and trying to claim rights to any of his assets, money or whatever, is because Tim never had legitimate children. He had six illegitimate children because them vaudeville starlets. Them vaudeville starlets. He he was a man of refined taste, but he never had a child with his young wife. And by the by, nineteen twelve, she was a, they were estranged. There's this like weird thing that happens before before she passes away, where Tim's family takes him away to Europe because they say he needs rest or heal or whatever. There's all these suggestions that he was starting to develop neurosyphilis again as a way to discredit him and and to say, well. Yeah, six illegitimate children. Obviously, he's opened himself up to fun things in the pants that uh, would then rot his brain. His wife contracts TB and then passes away in private care that Tim's half siblings were somehow involved in, like signing off on her care and what you hiring the doctors and getting her the best care possible. But she died in within less than a month of being diagnosed. And looking at her death record, and specifically that she was in, it claims that it was a care facility, but looking the address up, it was a private residence. It was an apartment building. And then she dies. Seems suspicious. When Tim finds out, it flips the switch on him that... All of a sudden, his mental health deteriorates very quickly, and his family claims that they have to step in. They have to petition for the equivalence of conservatorship, that his assets have to be signed off to them, that there's this like really quick progression of things just after his wife passes away, which, again, really suspicious. Very. He is sent to a sanatorium. He's sent to private medical facilities. Eventually, he gets taken in by his brother, Patrick, half-brother, that he gets basically locked up in this estate in the Bronx, in his brother's home. that he's trying to run away from. And so there, there's some articles, newspaper articles at the time that say, oh, he's at a care facility. But there's other articles that say these actors just literally living at his brother's house with a security detail and a medical detail assigned to him to keep him from running away. And so Tim keeps running away and finding his way back to the Bowery, back to these saloons that he ruled even just like a year or two prior where everybody still knew him. And he would be found at these places, raving like a lunatic, that his food is being poisoned, that there's somebody's trying to kill him, somebody's out to get him, and it's chalked up as hallucinations and his brain melting because of the syphilis. Or he's going to the places that he knows he has friends in. He's looking for those people to help him out. Last ditch attempt to, I don't know, save him. Was he being poisoned? Was it him just actually going crazy? It's there's just a lot of really weird, suspicious, very rapidly developing events. Yeah. Shortly after. Yeah. Hashtag free big Tim. Well, it's like Rosenthal gets cut down in July when Tim is out of this, the country because his family took him away to Europe. He comes back in August. His wife dies in September. The Becker trial starts in October of 1912, which is when Tim's conveniently disappeared off into whatever private medical care he's sent off to. And then he happens to be in another care facility or locked up in some way, shape, or form for the duration of any other trial or retrial that happens until... He dies in 1913. Quite tragically. 
And for some reason, nobody's able to recognize who this this dead corpse is. We should probably explain how Tim died. Tim goes missing for two weeks. His family never files a missing persons report or whatever the equivalent was at the time. It's never reported in the newspapers. Nobody knows that Tim's gone missing for two weeks because at this point he's been locked up for the better part of a year in his brother's house. He disappears and then a body is found on the train tracks not very far from the estate in the Bronx. The body is found and trigger warning, very graphic description. Here we go. Uh, his body is found cut in half on the on the train tracks. The conductor swears up and down that the body was already deceased when the the train passed over it. So you you think that okay, unfortunately got hit by a train cut in half, and that's not good for anybody's health. Um, he also happened to have most of the back of his head missing, as um consistent with potentially blunt force trauma or a gunshot wound. His face, however, was perfectly fine. He was also dressed in a very recognizable suit that was monogrammed with his initials and had monographed cufflinks. The body was then sent to the coroner, who did not recognize it, and proceeded to chalk it up as a vagrant that was going to be buried at Potter's Field. And the only reason that after two weeks of having been missing, is sitting in the morgue, being looked at at the corner, who had had many a dinner with Mr. Sullivan because they were friends for years, but didn't recognize the body. He was recognized by a patrolman who came in who had to do like a final check before these Ryan Coffins were closed up and sent off Potterfield. And he sees his body. He goes, that's Big Tim. What's Big Tim doing here? And all of a sudden, the coroner's memory comes back and he realizes. Oh, that guy. I knew him. You're right. Did I miss that? I should have looked at those cufflinks. Before I swipe them. And then the entire city shows up to his funeral. Charles Murphy, the very same with Tammany is one of the pallbearers looking ever so somber about Big Tim's death and what that means for the future of Tammany and how it'll never be the same. Boo-hoo. Basically, every pallbearer for Tim, every single one is a Tammany person. And if you were to do the whole connect the strings, every single one of those pallbearers directly benefited from Tim's untimely demise. As did the Becker trial, because, well, they couldn't testify. Nobody could do anything about was Tim involved in this at all or not, because he wasn't there anymore. I, I don't, honestly, I don't remember if it was before or after Tim's death, but it was in 1913. It was after the first trial. Tim's personal assistant went forward. And it's a weird set of articles. Because on one day, Harry Applebaum claims that with Tim's blessing and that Big Tim Sullivan knew everything about this, that here is this big sensational reveal about the Rosenthal case, that it was supposed to have been a kidnapping. And that it was a, it was supposed to have been a kidnapping because Tim loved Rosenthal so much that obviously it, it could have never been that. Rosenthal was going to die. It was never supposed to happen. And the, whoever was supposed to do it watched it. And we may have mentioned this in our Rosenthal episode that his wife, Lillian, she had suitcases packed. Exactly. She was ready to go somewhere. And it also explains why when some shadowy figure walks into the Metropole and says, hey, Herman, somebody's outside to see you. His reaction isn't, it's not even, hey, have them come in into this home of Big Tim Sullivan who's going to protect me 
and a room full of people of witnesses, it's, I'm going to pack up my things, I'm going to take all these newspapers, and I'm going to go outside, because he was obviously going outside expecting that he was going to get something, that he was going to get this payout. Maybe he was in on this plot. Yeah. What are the chances that his whole thing was go outside, somebody grabs him, they squirrel him away in this car that he maybe even knew was going to be there, and you know, whisk him off, make up Lillian on the way with suitcases, and get them out of town for a bit, right? Like that was Rothstein's suggestion. He was going to pay, he was willing to pay Rosenthal 500 bucks to get out of town for a little bit. And then two days later, Applebaum, Tim's assistant, he fully recants the entire story. Hmm. And so then by Becker's appeal in 1915, he gets a stay of execution in 1914. So we, we know that the next gang, the four alleged shooters, when it's, I'm just going to flat out say alleged because I don't think they, they were even there or they even did the shooting. Well, we know Frank hadn't been there. Yeah. Because even even Lefty and Jip both were like, no, Frank's mom was sick and he's a mama's boy. Yeah. So he was with his mom the whole time. He wasn't even there. I mean, as far as alibis go, that does sound like such a weak alibi. Of like, my mom knows where I was. But <laughs> but that's exactly it, right? So we, we know that the shooters got executed in November of 1914. Becker was tried separately, shouldn't have been. The, his execution kept getting pushed back because there's always this hope that something would come up, some new evidence or some witness would come forward finally to clear his name, to bring in new evidence. The, the appeal went as far as the Supreme Court, I believe. And in uh, 1915, there was a suggestion that there's new evidence. There's like this final push to to bring new evidence to hope to get Becker off death row. That appeal gets struck down because it was considered not new evidence. So Becker was finally willing, and there was finally a possibility that they were going to talk about what Tim knew, what Tim Sullivan knew, and victim Sullivan's role in the whole situation and the appeal was struck down because it's evidence that could have been presented in the original case in 1912 the only reason that it wasn't is because Becker was protecting Tim Sullivan until the very end mm. obviously by 1915 Tim's been dead for two years maybe yeah. there's some hope yeah but it was not new evidence it was evidence that was clearly known to Becker and very likely to his legal team the entire time. It's inadmissible. Yep. And even Becker says, I am being sacrificed for my friends. When I originally started researching this, this is like Phil Rabbit, who's who's part of this story. This is Becker Rosenthal, Jack Sullivan, Tim Sullivan, and maybe like Jack Rose. This is as far as I knew the story. And I remember talking to Matt about this, and I was actually in a meeting with a client, and he's texting me to say, I think I figured out who gains the most out of this whole situation, out of getting Becker out of the picture. And so I come out and 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 call him back, and he's not, he doesn't even say hi. He just says, Charles Murphy. Charles Murphy is the person that benefits the most from getting Becker out mm. and getting Tim Sullivan out getting Rosenthal out of the way too because he's playing too close to the fire he thinks it's the cops he thinks it's the the this police graft situation that's the issue because he didn't quite have the full picture but it's people like Murphy that are the politicians higher up I wouldn't even say it was Whitman's benefit yes he rode the coattails of this case to a governorship but then when he tried for a re-election, and then he, I think he even tried to, to run for a presidency nomination. But by that point, his claim to fame as the man that put Becker away, it was getting stale. He literally hadn't done anything else of note other than putting Becker away. So his, his candidacy didn't really go anywhere. But 
so many politicians got something out of the whole, whole situation. Mm. I, I have to wonder if things would have gone differently for Becker if Tim Sullivan wasn't so afraid of being associated with the case. Yeah. He had done stuff about Rosenthal if maybe Tim would have lived longer. Also, I hate to say it this way, but if his family hadn't been interfering. After Tim's gone, the family does a very interesting flip-flop politically and ends up with Murphy. They end up backing him and some of them working for him, I believe. Mm. It's so obvious that all of this was orchestrated and planned in a very particular way. I would love to have an episode on Charles Murphy. It is very difficult to have an episode on. Uh, there's early history of him. So by the time of the 1900s, early like 19-teens, he's known as Silent Charlie because he learned early in his political career that any quote could be and would be misconstrued or misrepresented in um, in the newspapers by journalists. So if he could avoid being quoted, he would do it. He pled the fifth. So he he owned a bunch of saloons. And again, this is like a, a thing that Tim Sullivan learned from him or he learned from Tim Sullivan where they did it at the same time that they bought up a bunch of saloons in really impoverished neighbor- neighborhoods, made nice with the locals, and befriended them, made, gave them a safe space, built up this group of voters, group of backers who would unquestionably always support them and then work their way up from there and so charlie murphy would hold court uh under the gas lamp in front of one of his saloons like out on the street and people could come see him and ask him questions and ask him for advice or ask him for guidance and he would either nod or shake his head that's it he would never say a word because he did not want to be misquoted in any way. Realistically, he didn't want to any anything to be traced back to him. There is kind of an agreement uh, with other biographers and everything, but Tim Sullivan is that he was very much one of a kind. He was his own generation of politician, where he so deeply, truly seemed to about all of these policies and about the people that he represented was also corrupt as hell. Oh, for sure. But also nobody really minded because they directly benefited from it, right? Like he was pocketing millions, but also he would buy food and shoes and do all of these things for people in the neighborhood without question anybody could come to him for help yeah but he was definitely one of a kind and once he was gone Tammany's completely changed make make it sound cheesy he was what gave Tammany humanity Mm. like people were okay with this political machine because like there's still this guy that represents their wants and needs yeah once he's gone Tammany is this disconnected political creature that the only thing people can do is criticize and have an issue with and yeah even politicians seem like a little bit more disconnected from it that there's less interest in wanting to be part of it tammy does end up you know it's rise it's you know strength is in the 20s when murphy is directly the leader and then its power kind of goes away during World War One. It wanes again during World War II. Kind of back comes back a little bit, and then by the fifties, it's just done. It fizzes out, and that's it. Yeah, Tammany's gone. As far as we're concerned, officially, Tammany Hall is no longer uh, a political situation that we know of. So Tam also had a movie made about him. He was that loved. I guess he was that much of an interesting character. April 1st, 1914, year or seven months after uh, Tim died, there's a film called The Life of Big Tim Sullivan or From Newsboy to Senator. It was released by the Gotham Film Company that definitely did not exist. And it's very difficult to find anything about because there were so many film companies in New York proper at the time. 
if anybody has any information about this film or has an existing reel of it or even like let us know or even like a more complete pamphlet because there is one on the library of congress website but it's missing chunks and entire halves of pages like somebody ripped this thing in half and we only have the left side if any film buffs have this film also the exchange in new york from 1913 14 or the gangsters would also really appreciate that. Mm. I think we mentioned that in the episode. Yes. I'll just keep bringing it up until somehow magically this film either materializes into existence or somebody just says, like, just please stop. Please stop. Before it. It's never going to happen. <laughs> Someone reaches out to you. Um, listen, we've, we've had gives weirder... Gives you some hush money. Oh, well, well. I'll... Apparently there might be a relative of Frank's taken around um, yes so hopefully that goes that goes on facebook on facebook of all things of all things if you are listening and you are a relative of any of these characters and you have one story in your finds from ancestry just know that some of these things may not be true and, and there's a big thing to say for family lore, right? Frank's family, the story goes, actually changed their last name so they could not be associated with, with the story. And it's not the first person that we know connected to this case that just completely wiped their slate and walked away and pretended that they weren't even part of the family yeah. or, or anything because this was like such a terrible thing that, you know, put such a mark on, on their whole family. Yeah. Please reach out to us. Fingers crossed. Because we do. Yes, we we do want to give you information that you may not know. And something that we've maintained since the very start of this whole project is if we can clear not just Becker's name, but somebody else's name if we can give an innocent person their chance not that you know we have any we can't say with 100 percent certainty about any of this right unless we somehow as we joke stumble across somebody's journals where it's charlie murphy's personal records of and on this day <laughs> i just it's jack it's baldy jack rose's diary i Lied. Oh. Tim Sullivan, a very prominent character uh, in in our story, patron saint, instigator, catalyst, whatever you want to call him. A lot of people that were in the positions that they were. Uh, vaudeville directors, uh, vice dealers, um, even, you know, newsboys that then became boxers that then became whatever they became. Tim did set them on that path. He was a very big influence, so absolutely credit where it's due. It would have been nice if he continued on this trajectory and was not afraid of Charles Murphy and whatever other members of this machine. Like, I don't understand any other reason why all of these people are protected between Rosenthal, Becker, Zelig, Jack Sullivan. All of these people are protecting Tim personally because they are so personally devoted to him that he could not Mm-hmm. return the favor and maybe maybe that's what he was trying to do when he was running away from his brother's house and ending up in like a bowery dive bar maybe that's what the whole thing was about mm. and that his family was getting him away from all of these people that he really felt probably were more his family than his own because he would have protected them so, I don't know. There's a lot of these, like, what ifs and 
and did yeah. through, didn't they? But yeah. And who caused that big bludgeon in his head? We'll never know. Right? There are two death certificates. The first one is for John Doe. And the second one is very hastily filled out with very in-depth detail. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll put them up um, on Instagram as part of our show notes. Do a side-by-side. It is a very interesting comparison of what's filled in and what's not. So we'll put that up on Instagram at Kings of New York Podcast. And if you do want to chat with us, please, we appreciate it. We don't bite. I might bite a little bit. Just a little. <laughs> Just a nibble. <laughs> And if you don't want us to talk about your family members, please reach out. We will try to do our best to honor that. If you have family stories that we either have confirmed or drastically denied, we'd love to talk to you. If you happen to have any family history with New York newbies from the 1890s, Weird, obscure connection, it, but trust me, it's, it'll help it'll greatly. Help. Yes. Please reach out. And not just because we're fans of the movie, <laughs> but like it, it actually will help a lot. Again, Kings of New York Podcast uh, on Instagram, on all the socials, Kings of New York Podcast.com takes you to the podcast page uh, with all of our previous episodes. If we said anything in the previous episodes that you didn't like, again, reach out. It's, if you love something, all the better. Reach out, leave reviews, subscribe, like, so that the algorithm can find us even more, better, gooder. And we will do our best to have an episode out next month. We do not want to do any more hiatuses. I know next month is going to be New Year's. It's going to be 2024. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Maybe maybe you might want to mark your calendar possibly for maybe the weekend of July possibly July 26th through the 28th maybe so we do have big plans for this year in the meantime bigger plans to just keep going with this podcast it's really interesting to now that we've been doing this for as long as we have, that all of a sudden uh, photos just randomly appear on social media and they're shared. This story seems to be coming into vogue. And we really, 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 really hope that this time what we're trying to do sticks, that as hard as it is, we write history that we can do that. Thank you for this wonderful episode. Thank you for sticking around. We will see you next month.